You're listening to the PR Wind Down Podcast, the podcast for public relations professionals that are ready to see real change in the PR industry. Here are your hosts, April White and Laura Schooley. Welcome back to the PR Wind Down Podcast. I'm April White. I'm the president and founder of Trust Relations, and I'm here with Laura Schooler. <laughs> We're here today with an amazing guest. His name is Chris Atkins. He is a longtime PR pro, consultant, author, speaker, and professor of public relations. And we're very honored to have him on and discussing his experience and giving us some tips from beyond. (laughs) Uh, We'll also get into the good, the bad, and the hilarious of the PR world with some recent news and industry fails, uh, some more what not to do's, and a pretty crazy listener story. Let's see, what do we got? PR moments of the week. So the rock band, Great White Issues. uh, Did you hear about this? Yes. Let me just open. It's like too high on my screen. It's gonna, it's gonna make me look like I'm looking in the sky and talking to you. Okay. (laughs) The rock band, Great White, issues an apology after performing a concert for maskless audience. Uh, So Great White apparently released apology after doing an outdoor concert in Dickinson, North Dakota front of a crowd of friends that were not wearing masks or adhering to social distancing rules. How many um, people does it say? Over 450 people were interested in attending the concert, according to the event's Facebook page. I mean, if there were that. nine people in the audience, which is pretty much all they deserve, but sorry. <laughs> the risks and dangers from their massless concert bring back to mind Great White's 2003 Rhode Island show where there was well, right. an explosive accident that killed 100 people, including right. guitarist type. So there's like right. some history there. Right. So that's um, what I was going to say. So look, they're in North Dakota. How many cases, COVID cases are there in North Dakota? Like, 17 i mean i'm being facetious and what when they played in front of you know nine people like but the problem with great white is the fact that yes they were the band that played in that club in rhode island where there was the fire and nobody can get out and a lot of people died and were were permanently disfigured it was horrible now i don't want to blame the band necessarily but when you are known for that incident which went like global like you got to be extra careful about this kind of thing you know i mean literally once bitten, twice shy. <laughs> what? What is that saying? <laughs> that's that's like the name of their most popular song. It's oh, oh, oh! I was like, is it like, is this some like old timey saying? I don't know. <laughs> no, well, it is, but it's like they're horrible. Like it's a horrible band, and but that was I their see. big, that was their big hit, and it's just funny. Like you know, it applies, I guess, in this case. I think. Okay, that's funny. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, so I don't know. I, like, again, like, it wasn't like they played some huge arena with like, you know, 12,000 people. But I mean, is it their responsibility to make other people wear masks? I mean, I, I would say that if you're, you know, the promoter and the band, it should be like, this is the message that we want to send across. And anybody who comes to the show has to wear a mask and stand six feet apart or whatever. But maybe they got on stage and said, you know, screw masks, like everybody rock. I don't know. I don't think that's what, I mean, that's not what the story says, but yeah. maybe. No, I, I, I just, I don't know. I mean, I just feel like there's, this is, you know, this is what happens with the media and it might be part of what we're saying, why people don't trust and use the word trust uh, loosely. Like really, are we really digging the bottom of the barrel that a great white show in North Dakota is like the center of the COVID universe right now? You know, 
I know this shouldn't remind me of this, but it does. So I was a huge Howard Dean fan back in the day. I was a Deaniac. Oh, they, yeah. called, they, they called us Deaniacs. Mm -hmm. And I was in Iowa and I caucused for Howard Dean. Oh, wow. And I was in the front row of the I Have a Scream speech. Do you remember this? Yes, of course. Now, here's the crazy thing. I was there. Everyone in the crowd was like losing their minds and screaming. And we were, he was screaming over us to be able to be heard because we were, we were crazy, right? We were loud. And the next day I'm driving to work. I'm listening to the radio. I'm like, who's that maniac screaming? And we're going to go to, and we're going to go to, right? Well, that's what they like. Yeah. Pulled it, right? And then we're going to go to North Dakota. Right. And then we're going to, right. Whatever it was. I don't remember all the states now. Yeah. And, and so the funny thing was because of how the media took that audio bite out of context, isolated it, and then made him look like a crazy person, he was done. That was it. It was crazy. And in the, I mean, I was there, I was so angry. I wrote a letter to the USA Today, to the letter, like a, a letter to the editor of USA Today, and it was published. <laughs> wow. Because I was just like, this isn't fair. Like, he's a good it's Dude. And it's really what happens. I know I heard happened. it afterwards. Because I, I have to there. say, I watched, you know, the like the news clip of like them segmenting that out, and it was like, whoa, oh, what's wrong with that guy? I mean, they made right. him look horrible. Like a lunatic. Yeah. Like in, cringeworthy. Yeah, no, and in person, like he was feeding off the energy of the audience. It was totally organic. It felt natural. Like it was So there was no moment where everybody was like, oh my God, what's he doing? No, oh, so no, scary. because, and, and part of it was that it was like, the context was that we were all really excited about Howard Dean. We'd all gone to the caucuses. Mm -hmm. And then once we got there, we were all lured away from our little corners. You know how you have to stand in the corner and like you caucus for a candidate. Oh, in you Iowa. Yeah, 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 yeah. I have heard about so it. So you like go in a room and you all like divide up. And then if you're, you're kind of like social shamed, if you don't, if you're not in a, in a corner with enough people. So they mm -hmm. kept taking people away from our corner till you know, like the, like the reasonable candidate or whatever. Right. And so by the end of it, you know, we, we had started really, really strong and our numbers had kind of dwindled. And then we ended up having a pretty poor showing, even though we went in with like guns blazing and thinking it was all going to be. Was that, um, John Kerry? What, what, uh, who ended up being the nominee? Okay. That Sorry. worked out well. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, didn't, I literally, yeah. Oh, I wasn't a big, wasn't a big Carrie fan. Anyway, that's my yeah. So, so I mean, there is a reason, right? That that the media is not to be trusted. Yeah, unfortunately. I mean, some some yes, yes, but um, but there's some room for improvement, and I think, and I kind of back to our first conversation, in the last podcast. You know, if, if the media actually came as like, um, from the perspective of being a judge where you're listening to both sides and you're offering a fair mm -hmm. point of view, I think there would be less of this disaster that's leading to what just happened with Facebook because right. there is a fair and honest representation that presented both. I mean, you don't, I don't care if you don't agree, maybe even as a journalist, you agree with one side and not the other, right. but if you don't present fair and balanced facts you create a vacuum for people to not know who to trust. And then, then 
yeah, all of a sudden Alex Jones is someone you trust more than <laughs> the New York Times, right? And it's like, and I'm not saying that's not meant to like be a, a pro or con either. I'm just saying, right? But he's not a fair and balanced, right? Exactly. Well, and I think it's probably why you know with like MSNBC and Fox News, whatever, like the big device, you know, divisiveness. There's just you you right. end up wanting to like you know hang out with people who are just like you instead of going to get the news. Right, and there's not a place to go get the news from both sides. You can pick, like you, you know, if you ideologically believe what CNN says, you go there. And if you ideologically believe what Fox says, you go there. But if there's nowhere that, if you were trying to be somebody that's like down the middle and you're trying to be a level-headed, balanced individual who takes all information in, right? And, and yeah. kind of weighs it fairly, like there's not a great example of that. Well, you know what I've I've read that people, uh, you know, their trust of media, the media that they trust the most, uh, or almost, or more than other kinds, is their local media, their local newspaper, their local like news station. Yeah, and I believe that um, to be true because. I mean, these are people who are making almost no money on, you know, really low budgets, et cetera. And they don't, you know, there's not some like national stage. There's not some national agenda. And especially when you're talking about like really small town in America, right? So um, I, as a PR person, have really started to take to um, reaching out to local media on behalf of clients. I think that's always, smart. You know, it's always like... Um, I think it's really useful to the people that you're working with, but it's also just, you know, more fair and balanced and you're not like getting, um, like, you know, having to dodge and explain and all that. I mean, it's, it's, it's not a game of gotcha or just, or to try to fill somebody's like what your editor, right. Was doing. You're not trying to fill somebody's, you know, like vision for how the world should be. I mean, because it's like a newspaper that, you know, 10,000 people read in upstate New York or something. Right. Okay, so I'm going to uh, read an, an anonymous story. Cool. Anonymous horror story. Uh, anonymous PR horror story that I have. <laughs> this is, I'm, I'm as surprised as you are as I read this. Okay, great. I'm going to put on my storytelling voice. Ooh. <clears throat> I had a boy, uh, I already messed it up. I had a boss once who is famous for being, quote, moody, to put it nicely. Some days he would be your best friend, and other days, he would scream at you without warning. You never know which face or persona you would get when you went to his office. You were usually summoned to his office without warning, I should add, which added to the terror. And you never knew when a drop everything and come here phone call would strike. One day I was in his office going over something I had worked hard on. It was not one of his not so nice days. Oh, it was, it was, it was on one of his not so nice days. <laughs> he, he started using abusive language with me and an aggressive tone. And I calmly said, I don't respond to that kind of language. I got up quietly in the middle of his sentence and left his office. It was five o'clock on a Friday. So I decided it would be best if I left the office altogether so that he would not march down to my office and start yelling at me again. I thought everything was normal when I got home. Well, as normal as it got in this office, but on Sunday, the HR director texted me and said, I'm so sorry to hear what happened on Friday. Are you okay? I said, yes, it was no big deal. I just left when he got aggressive. That's when she told me that I had allegedly been fired. <gasps> oh, shit. <What? laughs> 
<laughs> yes, she said. He fired you after you walked out of his office and apparently everyone heard it. I said, well, I didn't hear it, so it doesn't count. I plan to come in on Monday, and if he still wants to fire me then, he can do it to my face. When I went on on Monday morning, I acted like nothing happened. He did the same. I think he was just so glad that I returned that he didn't want to say anything. Oh, my God, and that's the end of the story. <laughs> what do you make of that? Well, I don't know how old the person was, but I'm having a flashback to one of the job I had that was you, sort of similar. Really? So this I never is like got, I didn't get, I didn't get, that thing didn't happen, but I literally was putting myself, and I was in my 20s, into like the office with the guy that I worked for at the time that was reminding me of this story. And it's a horrible, because you know this wasn't the only time something like this happened. And it's oh no. a horrible, horrible way to like live because it basically takes over your whole life that you're like petrified to go to work right and um i in this particular job i remember uh being on the subway going to work and being like i could just get off at the next stop and turn around and go home <laughs> and never go back again. but then me being me i always went in because then i would calculate how many dollars i would earn by just making it through that one more day <laughs> And so I would go back in and, uh, it was, it's, it, it affected my, my life, my, ha everything. He was a horrible guy and he's still around, of course, like they all are. Right. And did it, did it like, I had, I had one where it like messed up my sleep. I had, I like went to, I, I started having, um, what I thought were panic attacks. And I went and like talked to my doctor, you know, Dr. Isaacs down in Soho, who was like, uh. The doctor, actually, fu funny enough, he was the doctor on, um, what, Supersize Me? He was like the, he was like the doctor the guy consulted with. Anyway, oh, Morgan them. Spurlock? Yeah, do you remember the doctor that he went to? No, I don't remember. Anyway. I remember seeing that movie, but I don't remember that part. So, anyway, I only knew that because he was my doctor, but, I mean, it would never have stuck otherwise. But anyway, um, and I, w I, w I remember going in, he's like, basically like, well, so do you need Xanax? Like, it was just like, I don't know what to do for you. You know what I mean? <laughs> Right, like quit your job, I guess. Like quit right. your job or I'll give you Xanax. Like, I don't know what else to say, you know? But yeah, it was, it was bad. It was like, you know, my sleep got messed up and. I, well, I, I wrote down, I wonder if I still have it anywhere. I wrote down like a lot of the stories of what he was doing to me. Oh, really? Do yeah. You, can you tell any? Yeah. I mean, if, you know, the funny thing is, is I was going to say, if I told some of these stories, and he heard him, he'd probably know, but it, he so didn't understand, like, that he probably wouldn't even know that it was him, because he doesn't even remember, like, two days later, what horrifying thing that he did. Um, I mean, there were so many, oh my god. I know, I'm like, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but no, I'm like, I'm trying ah. to think of one that I, that, I like, I could tell one. without, without, like, being completely, like, obvious what it was right right They're all pretty specific to like the job um I, what i will say is that i ran into somebody else who worked for him at another job like we happened to work for the same company many years later and she was like oh my god that was the most insane horrible working experience of my entire life <laughs>
Yeah. Hey, do you ever go on Glassdoor to see at the agencies you used to work at or the people you used to work with to see the kinds of reviews? Well, the problem, the agencies I worked for don't really exist anymore. Ah. Um, or they were so small and insignificant, nobody gave a crap. I worked at um, Edelman, but literally for six and a half months. So like, I, I wasn't, you know, there long enough to really to make a difference. Wait, were I, you there shortly for such a short time? Cause it was like a nightmare or what happened? Um, it was, I was brought in by a guy who I worked with before. And so for some reason, like there was some weird, like, who's she? And I think it's cause they like, didn't like him or they didn't really get him. So I was uh, like guilty by association already. I see. It was this bigger team and like literally more than half of the team that I was supposed to be on, like wouldn't even acknowledge my existence. Um, and, and yeah, and then they like had me working under somebody who was, you know, five years younger than me. It was horrible. Oh, wow. But the, the real reason, well, that was all of that. But also part of the thing was he brought me in and within three months he moved and like left the company and like just left me there. Aww. I got a bit, I got a better job at a different agency um, from there. That wasn't such a horrible agency job. Good. Relative to some others. Right. But yeah, that was, yeah, he brought me over and then like left. Yeah. And like we talked about before, um, if there was nobody mentoring me, there was nobody looking out for me. There was nobody managing me. It was like, just like throw you into the deep end of the pool with the sharks. And like, if you didn't really understand the nuances and then of course you'd get in trouble because you would do the wrong thing, but you had no idea you were doing the wrong thing. <laughs> yeah. It was, woo! You learned by trial by fire. Oh, yeah. It was not a pretty sight. So that was my... Nobody even knows I was there. Like, it was so fast. Literally, I think it was six and a half months. <laughs> that was in New York? Mm-hmm. Which division were you in? It was, it was like a financial... It was like an IR group. Ah, uh, okay. I was in the corporate group at LMN New York. So today on our PR Wind Down podcast, we have a great guest. His name is Chris Atkins. He's a PR consultant, author, and speaker with more than 35 years of PR agency and in-house experience. He was the head of PR for PwC in the U.S., which is where I met him. He also served as managing director at Burst and Marsteller and as a VP at Hill and Knowlton, all in New York City. He's written a couple books, uh, most recently, An Honest Day's Work, True Tales of a Life in PR. And currently, he's an adjunct, adjunct professor of PR at Marist College in Poughkeepsie, New York. Hello, Chris. Welcome to our podcast. Hello, Lauren. I'm so happy that you were able to make it. I know. It's okay. Your wife's name is Lauren. Yes. <laughs> so, um, I, you're actually our first guest. And, well, I'm, I'm delighted to be your first guest. And um, I thought of you because you're like the, you know, Ben Kenobi of PR in my life. Oh, Obi-Wan, please. Yes, exactly. So <laughs> um, I wanted to bring you on because basically what we're doing for this podcast is we're trying to help young people who are, you know, entering or thinking of entering or just entered the PR profession to let them know that there are are ways to get like good normal jobs and work with like creative people who help you to like really inspire you to be the best person that you can be in your role and also people who are more experienced so that we can commiserate and sort of be like oh, oh my god I can't believe that happened to you too or listen to my story so um, and ultimately basically because 
we're entertained by PR. We sort of love what we do, but part of the entertainment is in how crazy it is too, right? And we want to make it better. So part of the yes. reason we're doing this too is, okay, let's, let's laugh about it and then let's fix it, you know? So we're also looking to talk to experts like yourself so we can, you know, pull together all of our collective experiences and figure out how to, how to make it a better environment in the future, how to make the agency world better, how to make, you know, the profession better in general. Well, I think that's a, a really worthy goal um, and, and a tall one. I mean, it's, it's a tall order. Um, and, and I think there's always been a group of people who have felt that that was their mission. Um, at, at one point, I think that was the Public Relations Society of America's mission. Uh, although personally, I think they've kind of uh, strayed from that mission. Um, and then as a result of that, uh, a guy named Dave Drobus, who I work for at Ketchum, uh, spearheaded the development of the Council of PR firms. And uh, they, they uh, wanted to be the organization that represented the large firms um, because they were the ones who were most in a position to affect change within the profession. And then they too started letting in smaller and smaller firms. And so I think that even though they remain true to the mission, they still have the same problem as most trade organizations, which is it's impossible for an organization like PRSA or the Council of PR firms to take a strong position on much of anything because they have to encapsulate, they have to encompass the uh, points of view of people in every dimension of the, of the business. So, you know, I remember when I used to work for Shell Oil, we did a lot of work with uh, the uh, uh, you know, association representing oil companies and they could never come out in favor of a position about conservation of, of natural resources because what might be good for ESO or Exxon wasn't good for a wilder in Oklahoma. And, and it was the same thing happening within the organizations within PR. And I really believe that a lot of this is gonna have to come from within all of us as opposed to waiting for an organization to represent you know, what, what, what some believe is the, is the best position to be in. Yeah, because everything kind of gets watered down, like you said, because there's too many. So how, uh, how or why did you get into PR to begin with? Well, it's an interesting story to me. <laughs> um, maybe it will be to you. Um, I, was, uh, I had just graduated from uh, State University of New York at Cortland, uh, where I had gotten a, a, a degree in education with absolutely no interest in the prospect of teaching at all. <laughs> And a buddy of mine had gotten a job with Grumman Boats. Now, if you went to summer camp, you might remember those aluminum Grumman canoes. Um, they were almost indestructible, which is why summer camps liked them. They were made from the same aluminum that Grumman had made military aircraft out of during World War II. And as a result, um, it, they, they, they tended to last forever. And, as a result, and because of that, no one ever bought them. I mean, you buy one, you never have to replace it forever, right? So they hired my friend to be sort of the first sales director of this little division of Grumman. Which, by the way, Grumman, you know, built the the lunar module that put people on the moon. What the heck were they doing? Make still making canoes? And the answer to that was Lee, Leroy Grumman, founded the company, um, knew that the people that they needed to get money from, congressmen and senators had all experienced the joy of paddling a canoe at summer camp their whole childhood. 
and had a warm spot for the name of Grumman. Really, that's why they still- Or, or like uh, Boy Scouts or something maybe right. too? Right, that's yeah. why they still made Grumman canoes after they were wow. a, a rounding error on the balance sheet of Grumman. Anyway, so my friend gets his job and they had a PR firm in New York, a one-man shop called Rockwell and Newell. Apparently this guy was not a good writer and the people at Grumman told him, you need to hire somebody who could write or we're gonna find another agency. And so my friend who was at Grumman suggested to the PR guy, Dwight Rockwell, that he talk to me. So I trundled down from Ithaca, New York to Manhattan and I met with Dwight and he gave me some of his stuff. And I have to admit, the Grumman people knew what they were talking about. I, I, my favorite passage in one of the press releases that I, that, that I saw was also, and in addition, I thought, wait a second, also, and in addition, no, not in the same sentence, right? You know, so I knew I could be useful, and I got hired under the table for 200 bucks a week, or I thought it was under the table. It turned out that it wasn't. And that's a whole other story. <laughs> and then you had to pay taxes. IRS okay. years later, but okay, fine. Um, so in this story, what I'm telling you is I got into PR the way most people got into PR. No one ever set out to be a PR person, okay? And now it's ironic that I find myself actually in a position where I'm teaching kids to be PR people. Right. I had to learn it the hard way. Now, the question is, did I learn it the right way? Or <laughs> am I teaching it the right way? Who will know? I mean, in 30 years, we'll find out. But um, you simply could not go to school for PR in 1980 or when I was in school in the mid-70s. Um, and, and consequently, this whole concept of developing a curriculum for, you know, how to do PR is, I don't know, it's, it's kind of, it's, kind of, it's, not that it's a little bogus, but, you know, I mean, so last semester I taught two courses, the fundamentals of PR, and then uh, the tools of PR writing. And what I discovered, and what you may have already discovered yourself, is that no one under the age of 20 can actually write. And Why? Because they're just like, or... And then for, um, well, for any number of reasons. First of all, they just simply don't have the linguistic skills because they just weren't brought up having to have them. Secondly, <laughs> so they were just to about. do the most simple things. Like they won't proofread anything, okay? It's, it, it, it's just dreadful, the, the copy that I get. Right. And um, so here I am teaching this course in PR tools, and I finally had to basically, you know, in my, in my uh, rubric, as it's called, which is the scoring system that you give uh, for, for kids going through the class, I said, I'm going to teach you five things. I'm going to teach you how to write a press release, okay? But when I say that, I mean, what are the components of a press release, mm -hmm. All right? So there's a, a dateline, a headline, all right, a lead paragraph, a supporting paragraph, a quote, and a, and a call to action. Those are the things that are in a, a press release. And then we're gonna talk about an executive bio. And we're gonna go through the same you know, list of components, okay? And several other things, media alert, et cetera. And I said, if you give me a document that has all of those things, if you give me a press release that has those five components to it, you, you can expect to get an 85. What but if you want an A, you're going to have to write at the college level. Right. 
I gave no A's up. Wow. So what if you thought, what, what if you offered them money? Do you think they would? <laughs> well, the embarrassing thing is that they get offered money time. I mean, they, they get hired as junior people at agencies uh, right. and they can't write. And, um, and, and I don't want, I'm not slamming the general. I mean, there are a lot of reasons for why this is true. Okay. Yes. Screens are part of it. You know, texting is part of it. Uh, but at the end of the day, if you don't have a passion for it, you're just not going to do it well. And it's funny because when I went to college, I went to George Washington at first for the first two years. When you walked into a room in a humanities class or, a, you know, an English class, whatever, you walked in with the assumption that of the 30 kids in the classroom, three of them could actually write. Right. You didn't expect the whole world to be able to write. You didn't expect the whole world to be able to be poetic in their, in their writing. But you did expect them to be able to grammatically free, type right. of free, okay, Construct a writing, construction, argumentative. and then you'd have three people who actually were like gifted right. Right, like, right. I walk into a room today, I am Nobody. stunned if there's anybody who would qualify as a gifted writer under those circumstances. It's just crazy. Anyway. So you still, you say that writing is the most important component of, of PR? Well, I think writing is a, a fundamental uh, building block of a career in PR, but there's so much more that comes into it that we don't expect recent graduates to have. Right. And it would be unreasonable for them to do that. But I actually have a module in my class called Careers in PR. And I talk about the success, success factors of, uh, of people in, in a career in PR, especially at, at, at the entry level. And, uh, and so one of them, yeah, is, you know, be a good writer. And, you know, I can, I can say that, uh, doesn't really have much impact. I do tell them to read a, a daily newspaper. It, online is fine. Um, but to read it not just with an eye towards the news, but also to how the news is presented and how the stories are structured. Mm -hmm. Learn how to tell a story. Okay, that's a huge component. Yeah. The good PR More so writer. now than ever, yeah. And then another, a number of other uh, pragmatic tips about succeeding in your first job. One is to never take no for an answer, unless it's from your boss. But as you have learned, there are a multitude of people out there whose job it is to say no when you ask a question. And if you want to be assessed in the PR business, you got to figure out a way around those people and get Do you mean reporters? Uh, no, you'd be surprised. Like if you're working in a company, anything you want to do, there's somebody who says, no, right. no, no, don't do that. Right. Okay. And if you work for an agency, you're one step removed from that, but you're going to get the same answer. Right. Um, you got to figure out a way to solve that problem. Also, do every dirty job that comes along. When you start out at a PR agency, check your ego at the door and volunteer for every dirty job that comes along. I give an example of this. When I was at Burson Marsteller, I didn't personally work on this, but we had the Armstrong flooring account. Okay. Now put that to the side for a second. Another account team was doing an event in Tribeca and the event was being held in one of those buildings. I don't know if you, you can even find them anymore, but it was an old industrial building and you would actually get into the freight elevator and it would lift you up to like, you know, the fifth floor, the doors would open up and it would be this spectacular loft, you know? Yeah, those Absolutely are like, you know, multi-million dollar condos now. Yeah, exactly, right? And so, you know, fine. Well, 
So we had an intern and he went down to work the event and he noticed that the elevator, the freight elevator, they're bringing some pretty tony people to this event. And the freight elevator looked frankly like a, well, you know. And so he looked at the floor, the linoleum's all chipped and, and cracked. He had had some work on the Armstrong Flooring account and he knew that back at 230 Park Avenue South, there were cases of adhesive carpet squares. So he ran up to the office, grabbed a box of these things, peeled off the paper, stuck them down. <laughs> now all of a sudden the elevator, people walked in and they were like thrilled. It looked great, right? Now wow. did that kid get a job? Bet your ass. I mean, <laughs> that solved the problem, yeah. That that kind of uh, of initiative and, yeah. and thinking. That's impressive. You know, I don't know really, if I would have done that. Yeah. You know, so, um, so I think that's a, a big part. And then, and then the other thing that I always tell everybody, you got to be nice to everybody. You just got to be nice to everybody. You don't know who's going to be your boss 10 years from now. I run into the people in PR all the time that I hadn't seen for 30 years. Yeah. And if they have a good feeling about you, yeah. that works out pretty well, doesn't it? Incredibly. And then the other thing, if there's people who I don't have a good feeling about, I don't do anything about it. However, they don't know how many opportunities they may have missed out on because of right. the way they treated me. Now, and, and even the, the worst of all is if you have somebody who hates you, who ends up working for you. <laughs> you don't have any idea how bad that can be. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a nightmare. So always leave the impression to the extent that you can that you are a genuinely nice and hardworking person that anyone would be glad to have on their team mm -hmm. and anyone will be glad to have you on their team, right. you know, and that's kind of how you advance. I, I just think those are kind of things that, that get, kind of get overlooked. That even, you know, I suspect that in most PR courses, that never comes up. And it wouldn't unless right. you spent a lifetime doing it like I have and watched what happened both to me and to other people. I mean, God knows when I started out, I didn't know any of those rules. Right. And I'm sure I violated every one of them. Did you, do you share this with your students? Yeah, yeah. It's in one of my classes. So it's interesting because I, um, like you said, there, I, I didn't, there was no PR class or track or whatever when I went to school either. I didn't even know what it was. I accidentally fell into it too. But a lot of, uh, recently I've been working with young young adults who are recently out of college and they they do have pr degrees or took a lot of pr classes yeah and i think to myself what the hell did they teach you you <laughs> i don't feel like they learned anything well you know it's not hard to figure out because if you go and look at any of the textbooks that are typically used in, in a fundamentals course in pr it's very mechanical and a lot of it uh, relies on case histories one of the problems with PR is that there really isn't a doctrine for how you do it in the way that you learn as a doctor or, right. or, or a lawyer, um, in spite of efforts to professionalize. Or a plumber, or a, yeah, yeah right. even yeah, or electrician. You know, which, which right. you do it wrong, it kills you. As a consequence, most PR textbooks tend to rely on case history to show how other people solve other problems in the hope. Right. that you will be able to transfer that knowledge to your problem. 
Yeah. It's like, you're never going to have their problem. Right. But you can see what they did to try to solve their problem. And um, maybe that'll come back to you. I talk about my own experience in having moved from one job to another to another. Um, what I have found is that you never know how much you know until you go somewhere else. When you're at an agency, you're kind of pigeonholed, right? Like you do what you do, whatever that is. You're the account executive on Armstrong Flooring, okay? That's what you do, you know? And, and kind of your universe is not that big. Then one day you realize that you've stopped learning and it's time to move on. And so you go to another agency, hopefully for at least a 20% pay increase. That's how you get a pay raise in this business. Yep. And then you go to a brainstorm for the first time. And all of that stuff that you learned almost through osmosis has become part of your toolbox. As if you had actually done it yourself. And you bring to the table these experiences which you never had but somehow are lodged into the fiber of your being and 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 you're able to translate that into the issue that's happening in front of you in this right. brain and people think you're freaking brilliant right. and it's really one of the most satisfying experiences when you move from one agency to the next in fact you know i was a catch-em where it was not unusual for people to have spent their entire careers there i mean 25 years and while there are certain benefits from that in terms of kind of cultural DNA of the organization, what you don't have is the new blood of people right. coming in who have had all these other experiences or barely absorbed all these other yeah. experiences and bring them to the table. Now, the truth is that if you went to any top 10 agency and presented them with a particular challenge as a client, nine of them would give you exactly the same answer delivered by exactly the same people. And that's why little agencies can actually do very well because they can come in and offer a truly out of the box solution. I hate mm -hmm. to use that expression, but something that, that was just not even considered, you know, viable, if at all considered in that big agency environment where everybody's marinating, if you pardon my expression, in their own piss for years <laughs> well chris thank you so much for coming on and giving us all of your insight and your wisdom and your stories and well, it was my uh, pleasure i love what i do and i love talking about it so you picked the right guy yes i knew well that's what i said this is the guy this is the guy has to be the first guy um someday you're gonna want to talk about something actually um interesting like what's happening in the news you're welcome to do so Okay. We'd we love to, we would love to have you back. It's been an honor. No, it's my pleasure. Thanks again for joining us for the PR Wind Down podcast. We had a lot of fun and we want to give a special shout out to Chris Atkins for joining us for a great interview today. So thanks again for being here and uh, can't wait to wind down with you again next time.